Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. A John Doe is found in a shallow creek bed. This male body is laying on his back, fully clothed, but there is something suspicious. He has plastic bags that have been placed over his head and an electrical cord tied around his neck. Hi there, I'm Yardley. I'm Dan. I'm Dave. And I'm Paul. And this is Small Town Dicks. Dave and I are identical twins and retired detectives from Small Town, USA. And I'm a veteran cold case investigator who helped catch the Golden State Killer using a revolutionary DNA tool. Between the three of us, we've investigated thousands of crimes, from petty theft to sexual assault, child abuse to murder. Each case we cover is told by the detective who investigated it, offering a rare, personal account of how they solved the crime. Names, places, and certain details have been changed to protect the privacy of victims and their families. And although we're aware that some of our listeners may be familiar with these cases, we ask you to please join us in continuing to protect the true identities of those involved out of respect for what they've been through. Thank you. Today on Small Town Dicks, we have the usual suspects. We have Detective Dave. I knew you were coming to me first. I was prepared. (laughs) Happy to be here. Happy to have you. And we have Detective Dan. Hello, team. Hello, you. And in our fourth hosting chair, we have the one and only Paul Holes. Hey, everybody. Hey, hey. So, Small Town Fam, it's a very good day because today we have a case from Mr. Holes. So before we pushed record, we were talking with you, Paul, about all the ways forensic science has evolved and gained significance during your career. And I think most notably, at least in my book, your work revolutionizing how we use DNA is just one huge example of that. There's also the increasingly sophisticated ways law enforcement analyzes trace evidence, manages crime scenes, and... It got you thinking about a case that you worked on in the late 1990s that could have been considered really an open and shut case if all you did was take the suspect's confession at face value and didn't dig any deeper. But that's not who you are, is it, Paul Holes? Not at all. (laughs) I bet you were actually the kid who asked for more science homework when the teacher didn't give you any. Is that true? (laughs) Well, no, that's not quite true. (laughs) Fair enough. And thank God in this case that you are the way you are, because without your thorough examination of the evidence at the crime scene, this case could have been derailed by a few human mistakes and some really broad assumptions about the victim and his lifestyle. So, Paul, take it away. This is a case that I responded out to, but it's kind of got an interesting beginning to it. This is taking place back towards the end of 1997. 
down in San Luis Obispo, which is a good few hundred miles south of my jurisdiction out there on the coast, a John Doe is found in a shallow creek bed. Pretty much the creek bed is dry. This male body is laying on his back, fully clothed, but there is something suspicious about the nature of what's going on with him. He has plastic bags that have been placed over his head and an electrical cord tied around his neck. So San Luis Obispo ends up investigating this case. And this John Doe has been out there for a few days, laying in this creek bed, and is moderately decomposed. I'm sharing some photos of John Doe's body after it was removed from the creek bed. And in the photos, you can see that there's some very slight mummification uh, drying out of the exposed skin areas and some bloating to the abdomen. And the reason I'm bringing this up, because this kind of shows the state of decomposition, and it's going to be important later on in the case. But in my assessment, this is not a very decomposed body. But this is a John Doe. They have no clue who this man is. Six weeks later, all the way up in Oakland, California, a Russian immigrant, Vitaly, was reported missing by his wife. And he was last seen at a nightclub in San Francisco. Now, even though this is his wife reporting him missing, Vitaly is homosexual and would go into the city to the nightclubs in order to be able to find male dates that he would bring back to his residence, which was a boat down in Oyster Point, South San Francisco. So it's kind of an interesting dynamic. The wife was just a wife of convenience in order for Vitaly to be able to continue to stay in the country. And one of the interesting aspects about Vitaly, uh, he was in the black market, Russian black market for selling lamps and stuff, lighting. Who knew? Yeah, who knew? He was making pretty good money doing that. Now, once Vitaly is reported missing by his wife, things started to work in the detective's favor when they were able to identify him through fingerprints, even though he was moderately decomposed, his fingerprints were still intact enough for them to be able to compare, do a direct comparison to this missing person out of Oakland and identify their John Doe as Vitaly. So now the investigation can get going. And of course, one of the first things they do is to see, did they have any contact with Vitaly down there in San Luis Obispo? Turns out, well, sort of, they had. They had a patrol unit pull over a car. It was a Mercedes. And the Mercedes was registered to Vitaly. But Vitaly wasn't driving it. There was three local kind of teenage punks down in San Luis Obispo that were driving this dead man's car. And of course, these individuals get interviewed and they say, well, we got this car from Joshua and Marty. They just kind of gave it to us. But the car belongs to Vitaly, so who the hell is Joshua? That's the same question that the <laughs> investigators had. How come Joshua and Marty are giving their friends down in San Luis Obispo a dead man's car who's reported missing out of Oakland? So they are able to track down Joshua and Marty. Joshua and Marty admit, believe it or not, 
to killing Vitaly. Well, that's a short episode. Thanks, Paul. That was great. <laughs> there you go. Done. <laughs> no, sounds like it would be a slam dunk. But here's the story. Joshua and Marty, they're being interviewed separately, but they tell a fairly similar story. They're up in Orinda, California, which is in Contra Costa County, my old jurisdiction, you know, East Bay in the San Francisco Bay Area. And there was a family that lived in a house in Orinda, had a young boy, teenage boy, and they decide they're going to go on a family vacation. Well, unbeknownst to the parents of that family, that teenage boy who's friends with Marty says, hey, my parents are going to be out of town. The house is going to be empty. Maybe you can uh, use it for whatever you want to do with it. So once the family leaves, Marty breaks into the house and then invites his friend Joshua over, and they start doing a rash of burglaries in this upper-scale neighborhood in Orinda, California. This was known as the pillowcase burglaries because they were using the residents' pillowcases to put all their loot in. So Marty and Joshua were committing all those pillowcase burglaries in this upper-scale neighborhood. So now, this is six weeks after Vitaly was found down in San Luis Obispo. We have a residence that Joshua and Marty claimed to have been in and claimed to have killed Vitaly. But of course, their statements need to be weighed against the evidence, what actually happened. So to help the listeners get an idea if they're unfamiliar with the geography of California, Oakland, where Vitaly was reported missing out of, is across the bay from San Francisco. Now, San Luis Obispo is about a four to five hour drive south of Oakland, and it's literally on the coast. And then the town Orinda, where Joshua and Marty are saying this homicide occurred, that's a town that's in my jurisdiction on the other side of the Oakland Hills from Oakland. And there's actually a tunnel called the Caldecott Tunnel that connects Orinda with the Oakland area. Okay, that helps actually. So Joshua and Marty, they're doing all these burglaries and they soon get bored. After a few days of committing all these burglaries, Joshua says, hey, I know this Russian guy. He's good for drugs and money. We should party together. So they say they invite Vitaly over to this house in Orinda, and they start partying. At one point, Joshua claims to have passed out on the sofa in the family room, only to be woken up by Vitaly on top of him trying to get into his pants. Joshua's going, "Uh uh-uh, that's not my scene, and grabbed an empty apple cider bottle and hits Vitaly on the side of the head while Vitaly's on top of him on this sofa, but then claims to have passed out after that, only to be awoken a second time with Vitaly trying to get into his pants. This time, Joshua's, no, this ain't happening grabs that same cider bottle and really hits Vitaly on the side of the head. And this time, Vitaly collapses down onto the floor and is not breathing. Of course, as a bystander who wasn't present when any of this happened, but you can't help but wonder how come Joshua went from zero to 60 so fast. There are so many other alternatives, like 
toss Vitaly off you and look him in the eye and say, hey, we're not doing this, you know? Yeah. What he's claiming is that Vitaly is sexually assaulting him. And so you put it in that lens, this guy feels like he's being sexually assaulted. He has a violent reaction to it to defend himself against being sexually assaulted. You leave the gender out of it and you just say, this human being sexually assaulted, what's the reaction? And he's like... I'm going to defend myself. Yes. This is a self-defense. So now Contra Costa County authorities, Contra Costa County Sheriff's Office, Orinda PD, which is a contract city with the Sheriff's Office, ends up being notified, hey, we have a homicide and the homicide actually occurred in your jurisdiction six weeks ago. So search warrant is obtained, knock on the door. You know, family had come back from vacation, but living in this house for the last month, and now law enforcement is saying, you guys have to get out. Somebody was killed inside your house. Could you imagine being that family? Oh, my God, no, no. Right? Like, talk about jaw-dropping. So now my role is to go inside this residence and prove that a homicide had occurred there and that the homicide had occurred the way the suspect said it occurred. Hi, Paul. Hi, Arlie. It's so good to see you. It's great to see you. I'm super excited. I want to tell you about this podcast I've been listening to. I know you don't listen to podcasts. I don't. I know, but you should really listen to this one. Which one is it? It's called Buried Bones. Oh. Yes. It's hosted by this fantastic woman who does the most granular research on these historic cases. Her name is Kate Winkler Dawson. And there's some guy on it with her named Paul Holes who sounds a lot like you. Well, guess what, Yardley? What? That is me. No! My head's exploding. (laughs) Small town fam, if you're not listening to Buried Bones, good God, you should be. Please do. Apart from the incredible research, as, as I was saying, that Kate does, and then you bring your modern forensic brain to helping either solve or re-evaluate these old cases, which is fascinating. I love the pre-show conversation. So before you guys get into the case, Kate always kicks it off with a question about how are you or about your fish tank or about the kava. It's great. I feel like I'm getting to know you in ways that I haven't gotten to know you yet. That's exactly what we're trying to do. Kate and I are trying to get to know each other as we are then launching into telling the story of the cases. It's a fantastic formula, and you have great chemistry together. Well, I appreciate the comment. Small town fam, check out Buried Bones. You will not be sorry. So I go into the house, and there's this dark leather burgundy sofa that is present in the family room, supposedly where Joshua had passed out. And this Persian-style rug underneath there, and then, of course, the end table. And I am now looking for evidence of violence, evidence of homicide. And I do extensive visual examinations throughout this house. And all I find is low down on some of the decorative rivets on the front of the sofa, there's these dark dots 
I take a small sample and apply this chemical reagent. I was using leukomalachite green. This is a presumptive test for blood. It's a two-stage reaction. And if it turns green, it tells me it's possibly blood. There's some other substances that can react, but it's a limited number of substances. So those little dots turn out to be blood. So I have what appears to be limited blood spatter on the front of the sofa, low down. And Paul, that chemical agent does not destroy the presence of the human DNA inside the blood. Well, yes. With what I test, it does. That's why I have to be very limited in my testing. So I leave DNA-containing material behind to be collected and tested for DNA purposes. Got it. As I'm visually examining this house, the only other visible blood that I'm finding is on the door, which is a slight smear, and that door is leading from the front entryway into the family room where the sofa was at. Low down on that door jab was another red smear that also gave me a positive reaction. And then on the oak hardwood floor in the front entryway was like what I would call like a feathered stain. But that was the extent of the visible blood in this house. So it's like, okay, I've got a story in which the suspects are claiming that Vitaly had been hit twice in the head. If you have head wounds, in particular with lacerations to the scalp, you could bleed very heavily. How come I'm only seeing such limited blood? So I end up spraying luminol throughout this house. What is the difference there? Okay, so leukomalachite green is colorimetric. It changes colors with the presence of blood versus luminol is a luminescent chemical. It fluoresces by itself in the presence of blood. And luminol, you know, this is not like what you would see in CSI. I was mixing the luminol reagent with sodium hydroxide, putting it into a sprayer, and I'm wearing a full face respirator mask, all the chemical resistant clothing, the Tyvek suit, you know, this moon suit to protect myself because luminol is considered potentially carcinogenic. Sodium hydroxide is lie. You don't want to be breathing that. And it's funny to watch the TV shows when they show people, you know. Like it's Windex. Exactly. They're, they're spraying it around the house. They're gargling with it and everything else. It's like, no, that is not how this works. Luminol gives such a faint glow that we have to wait until the middle of the night in order to use it. We'd have to put garbage bags or aluminum foil on all the windows to prevent the street lights or the moonlight from shining into the house. And at this time, in 1997, we were using film-based photography. So we would have to do 15, 20, 25-second exposures for this film that we, we had in the camera to actually get enough of the luminol light to show the photo. So I do the luminol, and what it ultimately shows on the sofa, the luminol showed that there had been a pool of blood near that end of the sofa on the seat cushion. And then down on the floor, 
those little dots of visible blood that we could see on the leg, there is a huge radiating spatter pattern on the front of the sofa low down. This type of pattern is created by a blow to a bloody source. Then there was smears, large smears of blood that showed a body being drugged across the rug and then drips as that body was likely picked up and carried outside out to the driveway area. And then a few shoe prints. So here I've got some tremendous information. Now, remember, this was film-based photography, and I had a partner with me who was the expert on doing luminol photography in the middle of the night with the old-style film. We took all sorts of photos of this. None of those photos turned out. Why? Was the film corrupted, or it wasn't enough light, or...? The exposure wasn't long enough. Nowadays, you'd know with digital, I've got it or I don't got it, right there. We didn't know, we didn't get this until the film was processed. And so that's like 48 hours later, and you can't go back and replicate this. Now think about this. You have suspect Joshua claiming to be passed out on the sofa, laying on the sofa with Vitaly on top of him, hits Vitaly in the head with the cider bottle. Now that first blow is not going to produce blood spatter. Because you need a bleeding source. You need a pooled source of blood to produce spatter. You can have a blow kill that doesn't produce blood spatter, but you could also have a blow that would knock somebody out or cause some disorientation. But the statement is is that after Joshua wakes a second time, laying in the same spot, he hits Vitaly a second time. Now you potentially have blood spatter. Vitaly's on top of him on the sofa per his statement. Yet, the blood spatter is down on the floor. Does this add up? I'm picturing when you forcefully stomp into a puddle, you have this broadcast of spatter. That is exactly it. You need to have that puddle to stomp in to produce blood spatter. Crime scene reconstruction is based on blood patterns. It's understanding types of patterns, but also how they are formed. So I could take a baseball bat and hit somebody in the head as hard as I could. Most certainly could kill them with that hit. But is it going to produce blood spatter, that first blow? No, because there is no pooled blood source. But if I hit them a second time, you get the poof, right? So now I've got that poof low down on the floor. That means there's a pooled source of blood. Now, I also had a pooled source of blood up on the seat cushion on the sofa where Joshua claimed to have been laying. Was that Joshua's blood? So now this becomes a little bit more sinister. And I told the investigators who are interviewing them, said, hmm, Doesn't look like Joshua's laying on this sofa. It looks like our victim was laying on this sofa. And then he received a initial blow to his head that's not going to produce blood spatter. But he laid there for a long enough period of time to form a blood pool. And then at some point, he's down on the floor in front of the sofa where you have that second blow 
And now you get that poof, that stomp in the puddle. And it's like spraying on the front of the sofa as well as on the carpet. So the investigators go back to Joshua and say, hey, we know you're lying. And Joshua's like, okay, you're right. I am. So now he changes his statement. It says, we were partying hard, doing the drugs, drinking, and then Vitaly ends up going crazy. And Joshua's going, I just got scared of this guy. So I run out of the house. But then I remember my bud, Marty, is back inside with this crazy man. So I run back inside the house and I'm tackled from behind. And while standing up, I'm trying to hit Vitaly off my back with the cider bottle. Does that match the evidence I just described? No. So now Joshua has lied twice. So for the listener, the sofa is leather. It's a brown leather sofa and it has like buttons. It's tufted. It's tufted. So blood could easily pool where the buttons depress the leather fabric. And Josh and Marty obviously did some cleanup on the sofa and the rug. But how successful were they in getting rid of every trace of Vitaly's blood? Because that's really hard to do, I think. Good question. They did extensive cleanup. Part of their statement was after Vitaly was killed... They went through the house. They cleaned up everything they possibly could so they couldn't see anything when they were done. And then they took Vitaly out and placed his body. Because he's bleeding from the head, that's when they decided, well, we need to put his head in those plastic bags and tie an electrical cord around it to prevent further bleeding from getting all over the place. So they put Vitaly in the trunk of his own Mercedes. And then they drive down south, get rid of Vitaly's body in the creek, and then give Vitaly's car to some friends that they knew down in San Luis Obispo. So that kind of completes the circle, but they did extensive cleanup. So when the family comes back from vacation, imagine, you, you know, you're, you turn on the TV and you're sitting right there where a whole bunch of blood had been from a homicide that had occurred in your house and you have no idea about it. Yuck. Hey, small town fam, it's Yardley. It's going to be summer soon, so the potential for stinky pits is imminent. That's why I really love Lumi. I'm obsessed with their sweat control, cream deodorant. I think I've said this so many times, but honest to God, I never thought I'd use a cream deodorant because they're sloppy and gloppy and sticky and bleh. But Lumi isn't any of those things. It dries quickly, it's never sticky, and it doesn't leave any white streaks on my dark clothing. So all of those things are a win for me. If you're not familiar with Lumi, let me tell you a few things. Six years ago, an OBGYN invented her game-changing whole-body deodorant, and now it has over 300,000 five-star reviews from people like me. Lumi is baking soda-free, paraben-free, and pH-balanced, so it's safe for your pits and your bits, which means you can use it below the belt. They have a lovely variety of fresh, bright scents like clean tangerine, my favorite, lavender sage, or toasted coconut. And the secret to Lumi's success is it's formulated and powered by mandelic acid. That's how it stops odor before it starts. 
So, Small Town Fam, Lumi's Starter Pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, my fave, and two free products of your choice, like mini body wash or deodorant wipes, and free shipping. And on top of that, as a special offer for listeners, new customers get 15% off all Lumi products with our exclusive code, which is small town. And if you combine the 15% off with the already discounted starter pack, that equals over 40% off the starter pack. So use code small town for 15% off your first purchase at lumideodorant.com. That's code small town at L-U-M-E deodorant.com. Do it. Hey, Small Town Fam, it's Yardley. I want to talk about Pros. Pros is the custom hair and skin beauty brand where you get on their website, answer a bunch of questions about where you live and how old you are, what kind of hair you have, what kind of hair you want to have. And then from millions of possible formulas, they create a formula just for you. So I'm lucky I have a lot of hair. Most days, my hair is the boss of me. So I need shampoo and conditioner that gets my hair to calm down a little bit. So I've been using Pros for a while, and one of my favorite things about it is you can choose your scent. They have a review and refine tool, which learns from my feedback and then adjusts the formula. Also, Pros is a certified B Corp. It's cruelty-free, and it's the first and only carbon-neutral custom beauty brand. So it's not only better for you, it's better for the planet. So, small town fam, Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash town. That's right. You get your free consultation and then 50% off at pros.com slash town. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash town. Do it. Hey, folks. Detective Dave here. Let me tell you about Simply Safe, the home security system that I trust to keep my family safe. I depend on Simply Safe to provide me and my loved ones with 360 degree coverage of my property and valuables. I love the variety of monitoring sensors available with Simply Safe Home Security. You get a glass break sensor, which in my experience is one of the most effective tools of detecting a break in. In addition, Simply Safe offers motion sensors, entry sensors, sirens, and flood and fire detection. With Simply Safe Home Security, I have the flexibility to use keypads at multiple entries at my house. This option is especially important to me and my family. I can provide access to people I trust and limit having multiple keys outside of my control, all at the push of a button via the Simply Safe app. It comes with a variety of cameras for indoors and outdoors. And best of all, Simply Safe is backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for less than $1 a day. It gives me peace of mind knowing I can leave the house, I can leave town, I can even leave the country, and I know my home is simply safe. The mobile app integration makes it so easy to make sure everything's in place in real time. I check it every day when I'm away from home. Simply Safe is the best. U.S. News and World Report named Simply Safe Best Home Security Systems 2024. And Newsweek ranked it Best Customer Service in Home Security. With Simply Safe, there are no contracts. 
And if you're not happy with the service or the product, they have a 60-day money-back guarantee. Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind. We want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off any new Simply Safe system with Fast Protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/smalltown. That's simplysafe.com/smalltown. There's no safe like Simply Safe. So part of the investigation was we knew Vitaly was living on this boat in South San Francisco, Oyster Point, which is, was a good 30-minute drive away from where the homicide had occurred. And before I had found the blood, I had said, well, you know, I need to get out to this boat and look at this because we're making an assumption that the homicide actually occurred at the house. So I rolled out to the boat where Vitaly lived. And the boat itself was nondescript. And getting into the boat, we start to see where there's a stack of VHS tapes. And these VHS tapes, every single one of them, were personal videos that Vitaly had taken of the various men that he had brought back to the boat while they were showering and stuff. Now, towards the back of the boat... That's where the bed was. And as I go back into this location, we see the bed. I'm looking at the bed. Uh, the sheets are disheveled. And then up on the headboard, I can see that there's several condoms. There's several vials uh, formally containing lubricant as well as a white powder. So it's very obvious what is happening in Vitaly's bed. And I decide, well, I need to see more of what's going on in the bed. So I end up strapping on this portable alternate light source. One of the uh, substances that we use an alternate light source for is to find semen stains. And back in the day, this was known as a polyray. And it looked like something that you'd see in 1950s alien movies, where I had this <laughs> gun that was attached to a massive battery pack on my belt and I'm in my standard khaki jumpsuit. And so I crawl back into this very confined space of Vitaly's bed and turn on the alternate light source. It glowed everywhere. And when I start to see everything glow, well, I mean, of course, there's been numerous sexual interactions over the course of who knows how long back in this bed. So as a matter of course, I collect not only all the sheets and pillows, as well as, you know, the condoms and lubricants and white powder, but I also collect the mattress. So literally, I grab everything out of the back of this bed. Now, one question that came up was, well, did Joshua and Marty end up ever being on Vitaly's boat ahead of time? And they had denied ever being there. You know, they're claiming well, we just invited him over and it was just a party. So part of the prosecution was to try to establish some sort of pre-existing connection between the suspects and Vitaly. And there was a Bacardi rum bottle that was on this boat next to the sink that was down in the boat itself. I was able to get Joshua's latent print, fingerprint off of that bottle. Now, did that prove that he was on the boat? 
Well, this bottle is a transportable item. So could that print have been deposited elsewhere and then brought on the boat? That is a distinct possibility. However, things are starting to kind of close in a little bit on Joshua. As I'm continuing to work this case from a physical evidence standpoint, I was like, well, what's going on in the car? I need to corroborate the statements that Vitaly, after he had been killed and had a bleeding head injury, was placed in the trunk. So I called down to the original CSI technician that had processed his vehicle and said, I found nothing, no blood, got no latents. And I was like, well, how did you search for blood? And he said, I used an alternate light source. And I immediately went to the Arenda PD chief and I said, you need to spend the money and get that car flatbedded up here. And I need to look at it because I have the ability to use specialized chemistry to look for latent blood stains. We got Vitaly's Mercedes up here to Contra Costa County. I opened up the trunk and the first thing my eyes go to in the left far back corner was a red stain that was about 24 inches across, 18 inches wide. It's huge. So this stain, of course, turned out to be blood. And it's very obvious blood. And the question was, well, how could that have been missed? Well, you think about how you use an alternate light source. You need to do it in the dark. So you turn off all the lights. And then you turn on this light source that uses light down from the ultraviolet, you know, up into the visible range. And typically you're looking for fluorescence. This is why it's so good to detect semen stains because semen has a tendency to fluoresce in that range of light. Blood, on the other hand, is made dark. I mean, alternative light sources have utility, but the naked eye test is pretty good too. It's sort of interesting, they skipped a step. The naked eye test would have been like, oh shit, that's a massive, looks like blood stain. And you go straight to the alternate light source, you might actually miss the most obvious sign. This is where you have to understand the tool you are using. A $5 flashlight would have served that individual better. This blood had pooled so much that... When I removed the trunk liner, I now could see visible blood stains in the spare tire compartment on light gray painted surfaces. And, you know, it might look like rust to a layperson. Turns out I ended up finding another visible source of blood. There's a ton of blood in this car. Now, the question comes down to whose blood is it? Of course, we think it's Vitaly's based on the statements, but we have to prove it's Vitaly's blood. Well, the way to do that is to have a DNA sample from Vitaly and compare it to this unknown blood stain in the trunk, as well as the blood from the house to show, yes, this is Vitaly's blood at the homicide scene. So at autopsy, to be frank, these fractures, even though that the skull itself is penetrated all the way through by the fracture from the surface down to the brain level, the pathologist ruled that neither of these fractures, in his assessment, 
could be determined to be truly fatal. It's not like typical bludgeonings where you see depressed fractures where now the skull is crushed into the brain. And the pathologist put more weight on the fact that, yes, you have these skull fractures, you have the bleeding and extensive bleeding, but you also have plastic bags that were tied around asphyxiating fiddly. So his last gasps are being extinguished by these plastic bags. Right. So the act of the cleanup process and trying to contain the blood with the plastic bags was probably more the cause of Vitaly's death than the blows to the head. Oh, that's a brutal way to go. Yes. So Vitaly's blood standard was collected, as is typical, right? You go to autopsy, the body's cut open, and the pathologist or the pathologist's assistant puts the blood into a vial. And that blood is used for DNA purposes. So I had gotten Vitaly's blood sample at autopsy. And when it was run to get his DNA profile, his blood was way too decomposed. There was no more DNA left. This is a problem. So now it's like, how am I going to prove the blood at the house and the blood in the trunk of Vitaly's own car is his own DNA? This is where the timing comes into play because it's taking weeks to get to a point to where now I'm realizing that Vitaly's own blood doesn't have his DNA too decomposed. Well, what ends up happening at the morgue during that time? Well, the body's gotten rid of, right? It's typically returned to the family. It's buried. It's been cremated. I was like, oh, no, you know, we may have a problem here. So I called down to that coroner's office and I explained my dilemma. And I said, I know you guys collected this blood. It wasn't good enough to get DNA. But oftentimes with decomposed bodies and bodies that are recovered out of the water or bodies that have been burned up, the one source of DNA that potentially still remains is the dentin in the teeth. Here you have DNA inside the hardest substance in the body, enamel, and it often survives until the very end in terms of the decompositional process. So I was like, oh, is there any chance he still have his body? And of course they tell me, well, no, we don't have his body. And then when I explain, well, shoot, I was really hoping, you know, for you guys to pull some teeth out of his head and send them up. And the guy I was talking to down south said, oh, well, you're in luck. And I was like, well, what do you mean? We said, well, we got rid of his body, but we still have his head and we have his hands. Wow. Why? That was my question. And he says, well, you know, after so long with our John Doe's, you know, for space saving purposes, we cut the head and hands off and keep those but we get rid of the rest of the body. I was like, oh, I've never heard of that process before and nor do I recommend it, but thank God. So now I'm telling this guy, hey, have your pathologist assistant or the pathologist you know, extract a couple of teeth from Vitaly's head and let's get him up here so I can get a sample of his DNA. I'm kind of mind blown right now. 
the practice of taking certain body parts and storing them, that's the first I've ever heard of that. So think about all the ways that a body can be identified. Oftentimes, historically, you break an arm, you break a leg, you have other types of surgical interventions or other anomalies that during life are recorded on x-rays or other documents. And yet now you're going to get rid of those potentially identifying characteristics in order to save space. So this is where I'm like, this is wrong. It adds a layer of defense for the suspect. Their attorney is going to love that. Oh, you guys just kept testing this material until it came out the way you wanted? The defense attorney is going to go, well, Paul Holes magically finds all this evidence when we have another evidence tech who says, I did an alternative light source. I looked at it myself. I didn't find any blood. The car gets transported north, and all of a sudden there's blood everywhere. That's what the defense attorney is going to, he's going to paint that in front of a jury and be like, well, who do we believe? Yeah. You know, it's the battle of the experts. And in part because I had the photographic documentation. But hang on, I thought the photos that you took of the blood spatter didn't have enough exposure, so they didn't come out. Well, those were the photos from the crime scene at the house. However, there were photos that had been taken of the trunk of the car where I could plainly see this very large red stain in the back of it. Oh, of course. Yes. Okay. And uh, there's plenty of sample in the trunk of the car for anybody to do a second test and go, yeah, the testing that was done was correct, and it is Vitaly's blood. So now they've got his head. I was like, get some teeth, send them up to me. And so now I'm just waiting with bated breath for these teeth to arrive. And I have an officer from Orinda PD who had gone all the way down to San Luis Obispo to pick up the evidence and drove overnight in order to get it up to the lab in order to be tested. And so I meet this officer at the front counter and he's carrying not just a little paper bag or an envelope with teeth in it. He comes in with a five-gallon bucket. And what is inside that bucket? Oh, no. The victim's head. Wow. And so now I've got Bitterly's head. It had been mostly defleshed by an anthropologist when they were trying to identify the John Doe. But now I had access to his skull. And what this gave me, in addition to his teeth, I was also able to see the fractures from the blows that were inflicted to the right side of his skull. So this helped me to further position vitally how he was laying at the time he is receiving blows. And there is no question, Joshua in two different statements said he was the one that inflicted the blows. So this adds into the crime scene reconstruction. And in this instance, now I could very confidently say the victim, Vitaly, was the one likely passed out on the sofa, received a blow on the sofa while most likely asleep on his side, no blood spatter, 
and then was pulled down onto the floor, where now with that bleeding injury to his head, he receives another blow, causing the blood spatter low down on the front of the sofa. So think about how now we have a change. The initial statements by Joshua were self-defense. First, he's sexually attacking me. Second, it was he's physically attacking me from behind, and I'm trying to beat him off with the bottle while I'm standing up. And the blood patterns don't correlate with that at all. This really transitioned from a self-defense to now, well, why are they inviting Vitaly over? It's because he's good for drugs and money. And once they kill him, what do they take? His Mercedes. So now we have robbery in conjunction with homicide. And in California, that's murder in the first degree with special circumstances. In this case, murder for financial gain, which in California qualifies for the death penalty. The thing that I haven't told you is at the time of the homicide, Joshua was 17 years old. So he could be tried as an adult, but would not be eligible for the death penalty even if convicted. So that's going to impact the potential for sentencing, whether Joshua is tried as an adult or as a juvenile. Right. So now the teeth that were extracted from Bitterly's jaw were able to get his DNA. The DNA profile matched the blood from the homicide house as well as the blood in the back of Bitterly's car. But that's not the end of the story. The prosecutor in this case is skeptical about the self-defense angle, that Joshua is claiming self-defense based on a sexual assault or an attempt sexual assault. Joshua and Marty are claiming self-defense, yet then they take his body, put it in the trunk of his car, drive halfway across the state and dispose of his body, and then get rid of his car. So Joshua and Marty knew they had committed a crime. Ultimately, it was the DA who said, I've got some suspicions that they had a pre-existing connection between the suspects and Vitaly. So remember that bedding that I collected out of the boat. So that ended up being processed. There were 17 semen stains that were found on the bedding. One of those semen stains was a semen-saliva mixture. The semen was tested, and it came back to Vitaly. The saliva component came back to Joshua. So we were able to prove a sexual encounter between Joshua and Vitaly using DNA in this case. Now we're going to trial, and I am sitting in the courtroom nervous as hell because I am going to be testifying to my observations of the luminol, my crime scene reconstruction, which is going to flip the switch from self-defense to murder in the first with special circ. And I didn't have the photographs to back up my statements. I'm going to be talking to this jury and having to wink at them. Just believe me. You know, this is what I saw. So as I'm sitting there sweating it out, one of the San Luis Obispo detectives comes out and he's doing the, you know, this throat cut gesture as he's coming out. And I was like, what's going on? He says, we just mistried. Oh. Like, 
What do you mean? How do you have a mistrial before you even begin? Right? So it turned out that, remember, Joshua and Marty initially went into that house and were committing all those pillowcase burglaries in this upper scale neighborhood. Well, they, during their interviews, were videoed making all those admissions to the burglaries. Well, the defense said, I don't want the jury to hear anything about those burglaries. It's going to prejudice them relative to their assessment of the murder. So the judge ordered the prosecutor, edit the video. Well, as soon as San Luis Obispo detective gets on the stand and he's going to play the video of the interview, play button is pushed, and there is Joshua and Marty talking about the pillowcase burglaries that they were doing in front of the jury. Oh, man. So somehow the video never got edited. Yes. And that's when the defense just flew into a rage and the judge shut the case down. Now, this case, this case wasn't retried. A plea deal was reached and Joshua was sentenced to seven years. Oh, my. I'm assuming that's because Joshua is a juvenile and the death penalty and life without parole are not an option. Correct. So was Marty charged with murder as well as Joshua? No. So Joshua fully admitted he was the one that inflicted the blows, though the facts did not line up with the evidence, but he's the one who's admitting to have killed Vitaly. Marty was an accessory that was involved and admitted to being involved in the cleanup and the disposal of the body down in San Luis Obispo. Now, I forget if he was charged with anything specific or if he reached a plea deal, you know, before this case went to original trial. And what was Joshua's motive? Robbery. There is no admission to that, and he wasn't convicted of that. But what are Joshua and Marty doing in that house before Vitaly shows up? They're committing burglaries for financial gain. And then the reason they said they brought Vitaly to the house was because Vitaly had drugs and he had money. And I don't know if what they got from him from a drug or money standpoint but they got his Mercedes, you know, and ultimately they got rid of the Mercedes. But still, you think about that set of circumstances with the way that this crime played out. You hit a sleeping man on the sofa on the side of the head, pull him down on the floor and hit him again, put plastic bags and tie those plastic bags around his head and put him in the trunk of the car. Well, you've committed a homicide and you've had a financial gain. Thank God for your creative approach to figuring out what actually happened, Paul. It's that kind of out-of-the-box thinking that I always think if something awful, truly, truly awful ever happened to me, I'd want investigators like you and Dan and Dave on my case to actually look in every single corner, turn over every rock. Well, but that's what we should be doing. You know, we get into this line of work— and the public puts their faith in us and pays us, you know, to work these cases. And the unfortunate aspect, like what this case somewhat underscores, is that there can be a huge disparity between individuals in terms of their ambition, their persistence, and their expertise and experience. And so oftentimes, you know, if you were to be killed in one jurisdiction— 
case could be solved. If you were killed in another jurisdiction, the case remains cold for 40 years. I've said for years, there are times where it just depends on which investigator gets assigned to your case, whether or not you're ever going to have an answer to what happened. Sure. That's just the real life aspect. And no matter what you are doing in your life, whether it's a positive, negative experience or outcome for that event is going to be based on the people that are feeding into getting you to that point. And law enforcement is no different. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. Thank you, Paul. I learned more again when listening to Paul Holes. So true. Small Town Dicks is produced by Gary Scott and Yardley Smith and co-produced by Detectives Dan and Dave. This episode was edited by Logan Heftel, Gary Scott, and me, Yardley Smith. Our associate producers are Aaron Gaynor and The Real Nick Smitty. Our music is composed by John Forrest. Our editors extraordinaire are Logan Heftel and Soren Bajan. And our books are cooked and cats wrangled by Ben Cornwell. If you like what you hear and want to stay up to date with the show, visit us on our website at smalltowndicks.com. Small Town Dicks would like to thank Speech Docs for providing transcripts of this podcast. You can find these transcripts on our episode page at smalltowndicks.com. And for more information about Speech Docs and their service, please go to speechdocs.com. And join the Small Town fam by following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at at Small Town Dicks. We love hearing from you. And if you support us on Patreon, your subscription will give you access to exclusive content and merchandise that isn't available anywhere else. Go to patreon.com slash smalltowndickspodcast. That's right. Your subscription also makes it possible for us to keep going to small towns across the country in search of the finest, rare, true crime cases told, as always, by the detectives who investigated them. So thanks for listening, small town fam. Nobody's better than you.